Captain's log, stardate 92673.69. The Prioritas has been ordered to return to the Alpha Quadrant, more specifically Starbase 23, and have been given clearance to use Transwarp. I've been instructed to meet with Captain James Lawrence upon our arrival, and further information will be provided at that time. It is unusual for Starfleet to be so cryptic in its communications, and that has piqued my interest aboard the Prioritas and with me. Captain Lawrence, it's been a while, sir. Captain Leandros, I think the last time we spoke, you had a view of the Solanus unhindered by, well, anything. <laughs> that sounds about right. For the record, I prefer the view of the Ion Nebula from inside the station. I can't say I blame you. This way, please. Of course. May I ask, Captain Lawrence, I was informed you had more information for me. And I've been told, well, nothing. I haven't been told anything about our being recalled to Starbase 23. It isn't standard procedure, I understand. But security played a large part in our decision to withhold certain details from the transmission. All will be revealed shortly, Captain. Have you seen the new command battlecruisers, Captain Leandros? Beautiful ships. We had the USS Concord here last week. She was on her final shakedown. Oh, yes, they are beautiful ships, Captain Lawrence. I hear they have some interesting functionality as well. They do. Excellent aesthetics. But whoever designed the officer stations is obviously a genius. Concentrate firepower, overwhelm emitters, phalanx formation? I wouldn't mind taking one for a few laps around the universe. <laughs> the designer is no doubt a genius. But as nice as they are, I wouldn't trade the Prioritas for any of them. Or any ship for that matter. I don't suppose you would. Whoa, elite security detail. Computer. This is Lawrence. Security code Lawrence, Alpha, 1, Z, 3, 3, Alpha. Security authorization accepted. Oh. Captain Elijah Leandros, may I introduce to you Federation President Anik Okeg. Captain Leandros, please take a seat. We have much to discuss. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Mizugai. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Admirals. You're listening to episode 212 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded on Thursday, March 5th, 2015, and available for download or streaming on Monday, March 9th, at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Cookie. And I'm Jace. Cookie. Jace. This is a special week for you both, isn't it? It was around this time last year that you joined the Priority One Podcast family. Congratulations for tolerating me for once in a year. <laughs> so why don't you guys take a moment? Why don't you tell us some of your most memorable moments this last year? Sure. I have to say the, the first thing that comes to mind and the biggest was when we first met up at Vegas 
right there in the airport standing around with the sign looking for cookie and then suddenly it was like live action Mm -hmm. priority one podcast it was so weird elijah and i already knew each other in real life but still the combination was different like the sum being greater than the parts i mean we were together for five days and we quickly got joined by uh skiffy and shani and gosh it was such a whirlwind of meeting many of these other folks that we had maybe just spoken with via Skype or TeamSpeak, both listeners and developers. Very memorable. Uh, Certainly a unique experience for me to date. How about you, Cookie? Well, we got to do so much this year. I mean, we went to Star Trek Las Vegas, like Jace mentioned, and it was all because of the support from our listeners. Otherwise, I would not have gone. And so we got to meet all in person and hang out and that was probably the the best thing that i remember from this year was meeting you guys and we also got to visit cryptic studios and spend some time with the developers of the game that was so exciting and i got to film my nerve tonic documentary and that was a big project for me that took me a really long time to do so i had a lot of fun doing that and we also got to explore the world of the DPS League recently, and I've learned a lot from them about the game, and I appreciate the time that they took to help us with our builds. And I also have enjoyed playing with the people that have supported us from the start. Um, all the players that join us in-game and the Priority One chat channel in-game and TeamSpeak, along with the new members that keep coming in, they're excited to play the game, and it helps us to be excited about the game too. And we've gotten to meet so many amazing people along the way, and I'm just really glad to be a part of the team. Well, I have to say that you guys have really helped take this podcast to the next level. And this year, this last year, 2014, was a remarkable year for Priority One Podcast Cookie, like you mentioned. Because of our listeners, we were able to attend the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, and we were able to also make it to San Francisco to visit Cryptic Studios and cover the launch of Delta Rising. It's just been fantastic and amazing. The two of you combined have uh, brought talents to the table that um, have really taken the podcast to the next level. So thank you so very much for your last year of volunteered service to Priority One Podcast. We hope that you'll continue to enjoy it, and we look forward to another year or several years. Thank you. And wait, volunteer? I thought the checks were just late. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's jump right into this week's episode. What do we have this week, Cookie? This week, we check out the cosmos with visualization scientists for NASA's JPL and Priority One science advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt. Star Trek Online News is busy this week with new events like the Crystalline Entity, reward updates to patrols, the launch of the new Tier 6 Jem'Hadar strike ship, and of course, the unveiling of a special memorial to Spock and Star Trek alum who have since passed. We'll also give a review of upcoming special events in Star Trek Online for you to mark your calendars, and we'll keep tracking those devs so that you stay informed of special posts related to the game. Finally, before we wrap the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Admirals, we invite you to join us for the live recordings of these episodes on PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash live. It's awesome engaging with you in the chat room on Thursday nights, so join in on the fun at around 8 p.m. Eastern Time, that's 5 p.m. Pacific, Thursday nights, only at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash live. Attention, all hands to stations. Voting has begun for the 10th annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. We need all hands at their stations and to vote for Priority One Podcast in the best produced and gaming categories. 
We're the only podcast representing Star Trek. So this year, more than ever before, we need to take this home for Trekkies and Trekkers everywhere. So visit podcastawards.com once a day, every day, until March 24th, and vote for Priority One Podcast in the best produced and gaming categories. You got us this far. We need you to help us bring it home. Don't forget, we love chatting with you. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast or on Twitter at STO Priority One. And if you're in game, catch the cast, crew, and fleet mates by joining the Priority One chat. To do that, just type forward slash channel underscore join space priority one right in the game's chat box. Now, let's track out the cosmos with NASA JPL visualization scientist, Dr. Robert Hurt. I don't know. Then let's track it out. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Hurt here to track it out. This week, bring us to some really cool news about our new investigations of the Dwarf Planet series. This week, JPL held a press conference marking the arrival of the Dawn mission to the Dwarf Planet series, the first Dwarf Planet to actually be explored close up in our whole solar system. And in fact, it's the largest body inside the orbit of uh, Uranus that has not yet been explored by probes. So this week marks the final orbital insertion of Dawn into orbit around Ceres, which has just finished up a several year study of the uh, asteroid belt object Vesta, giving us the best maps of that other very large object in the asteroid belt. But Ceres is kind of special. Ceres uh, is actually, for those who uh, have been following the uh, Pluto controversy over the years, I don't know how you guys fall in on Pluto. Or were you for or against Pluto getting demoted out of the out of the planet status? Pluto is a planet. Yeah, mm. it's a planet. Did you know Pluto was not the first demoted object in the solar system? I did not know. What was the first demoted? Well, just coincidentally, that would have been Ceres. Okay. The uh, asteroid Ceres was actually discovered uh, January 1st, 1801. And at the time, it was thought to be a very large object, you know, you know, larger than the moon, maybe even almost Earth-sized. And it gained the designation of planet. It was the missing planet between Mars and Jupiter, and considered that way for decades. Until, as time went on and further study went on, they discovered that actually Ceres was a lot smaller than they had originally guessed it to be, a lot less massive. And where they initially thought it was a solitary object in that space, they discovered it was actually one of, you know, hundreds, thousands of other objects in that space. And so it actually ended up getting demoted out of its planet status and then uh, introduced as the largest of this new class of objects called asteroids. Which, you know, if you think back to your Pluto history, is kind of exactly what happened to Pluto, too. So there's definitely precedent in the solar system. Pluto has, I guess, a really good company. But the Dawn mission has now reached Ceres and is doing another thing that's a first for solar system exploration. The Dawn spacecraft is the first spacecraft we've sent out that's actually now orbited two different bodies in our solar system. And that has only been possible due to this really innovative propulsion system, the ion propulsion or ion drive. And uh, this is something that JPL has been prototyping and working on for a long time. But long before JPL started working on it, Star Trek had first at least invented the idea or the the term. Anyone know the first reference of of ion drive in uh, Star Trek? Ooh, was that what they had in Space Seed? No, no, not in Space Seed. Think cheesier. So the original series... Think worst episode ever. Spock's brain. No. Yes. 
this is the the ship that was coming to intercept the Enterprise at the beginning, and everyone, and I believe Mr. Scott, was just amazed at the incredibly advanced ion drive that it had. So, uh, yep, precedent for this was set all the way back in Spock's brain. <laughs> but the ion drive propulsion, it's a super, super slow acceleration system. This is This is the kind of spaceship drive that gets you from zero to 60 in about four days. But the trick is, it doesn't turn off. It keeps thrusting. So even though its thrust is only about as much force as a piece of paper puts on your hand, it pretty much is on continuously and accruing speed over days, weeks, months, and years. This has actually enabled it to maneuver through the asteroid belt, insert itself into orbit around Vesta for some significant period of time, then leave orbit Vesta and maneuver over to Ceres. And now it's beginning a long process of orbital insertion into Ceres. And so it really shows the tortoise and the hare issue that sometimes the uh, the tortoise wins in the long run by being slow and constant. But uh, I encourage everyone to go check out the incredible new pictures coming from Ceres. It's our, our first view of this uh, dwarf planet, the first close-up view of a dwarf planet in our solar system. Very round, very kind of moon-like, but it's, of course, interestingly marked by these bizarrely bright spots on the uh, surface in the base of some of the craters. Glaringly bright spots. Uh, we sort of knew these existed from Hubble observations and other ground-based observations before, but it was always assumed they were fairly lightish, large areas. What uh, we're seeing now are they're actually incredibly tiny, compact spots that are glaringly bright. So I think that's going to be the big mystery to solve in the next coming months and years, perhaps, as we get closer and closer views and, and understand what could be doing this. Is this related to uh, subsurface ice or uh, light chalky material that's uh, beneath the surface, perhaps recent impacts or uh, some kind of geyser activity. Should be interesting to see how uh, how the science plays out. Okay, so I have two questions. The first being, what qualifies? What criteria is used to determine whether or not a planet or an object in space like Ceres or Pluto would be qualified as a planet or dwarf planet or not a planet at all? Well, that is... A matter of ongoing debate, but this actually all came up at a uh, International Astronomical Union meeting back in uh, 2006 that I was actually at, where the uh, astronomy community voted on wh what the definition of planet should be. Because up to that point, we actually didn't even have a definition of planet. We it was one of those things like art. We know it is when we see it, but we don't actually we can't actually explain it. But the definition that was actually voted in was basically that it three main things: it had to orbit the sun, had to be large enough, massive enough, that it had enough self-gravity to shape itself into a sphere. And that third, it had to be massive enough that it is the sort of, it had swept out its orbit, or, or could be thought of as the gravitationally dominant thing in its orbit. So uh, if you think about, you know, the Earth, I mean, there are asteroids that, that kind of move in and out of the inner solar system, but nothing really, we're not part of a population of asteroids that, that basically share our orbit with us. Um, uh, there are a few resonance points that asteroids will, will clump in, but nothing uh, major. Or likewise, Jupiter, you know, nothing out there. Uh, so Ceres, however, is just one of thousands of asteroids that if you basically overlaid Ceres' orbit on the asteroid belt, it would look like every other orbit, all right? There's nothing distinguishing. It, it, obviously, it is not massive enough to have perturbed and knocked other things out of the orbit. And with Pluto, kind of the same deal. It was... Uh, when it was first discovered, it was thought to be this solitary object out beyond Neptune. And now we know that there are actually thousands of Kuiper Belt objects out there that share very, very similar orbits. And in fact, it's very undifferentiated. In fact, Pluto is in an orbital resonance with Neptune. So Neptune actually has helped define Pluto's orbit due to its gravitational interactions. 
So does that make you any happier about Pluto being demoted? It, it, no. <laughs> I grew up with Pluto being a planet. Well, the original definition that was proposed at the IAU meeting was that to be a planet, it basically had to orbit the sun and had to be massive enough to be round, and that was it. Now, there was still kind of an absence of definition of what does it mean by round. How Pluto would have been a planet, Ceres would have been a planet, Eris would have been a planet, uh, Vesta maybe would have been a planet, and you know we would have gone to maybe dozens. But we would have still been in this scenario where there would be sort of these eight really substantive ones and then a lot of like little things that kind of trail off into some fuzzy boundary of how round is round enough. Why can't we have like class planets, like M class planets, and then other letters for other classes, but they still can say that they're planets? Well, M class planets and demon class planets and so forth, those are actually, uh, in Star Trek, right, they're not actually keyed to the size of the planet, they're keyed to the surface conditions of the planet, right? So there are yeah. L class planets and M class planets and so forth, right? But that was really more of a, a statement of um, surface conditions and gases and pressure. But something and like that, I mean. Yeah. Not necessarily so, that. Well, and that's effectively what happened, right? The uh, the dividing line was drawn at a uh, planet has to be something that's basically dominating its orbit. It's got to be like the main bully that's that's at that distance from the sun and that nothing else is, is really challenging it. And then a new category, dwarf planet, was introduced to cover these cases of kind of smaller moon-sized things, things smaller than our moon that are round but, you know, are one of populations, and so rather than putting a letter, I mean, you know, it's dwarf-class planets as opposed to planets, almost is, is kind of the way the definition went. And now here's my other question regarding the actual ion propulsion, right? Because this is, this is really where it ties into a little bit of Star Trek. So with an ion propulsion, you described it earlier that it's, it's a bit of a snowball effect, right? It, it, yeah. you, it increases speed over time so that that way you're always increasing speed and the engine never shuts off, essentially. So with it continuously gaining speed... How would it, let's say, maneuver? How does it avoid an asteroid? How does it not hit an object in space? Sure. Well, first of all, despite what we see in Star Wars and in, sadly, virtually every science documentary you've ever seen on television, the asteroid field is really, really empty. <laughs> there are thousands of objects out there, but they are strewn across millions and millions and millions of miles. So the odds of hitting anything in the asteroid belt if you fly through it are practically nil anyway. So avoidance isn't actually that big of an issue because there just isn't that much stuff. I mean, numerically, there are, the numbers are large, but when you then divide by the actual volume of space that they fill, suddenly you realize that it's actually very, very sparse. I was particularly upset that Cosmos missed this opportunity to, to actually show this. The asteroids they showed in Cosmos were every bit as much like a Star Wars asteroid belt as anything you'd imagine. Whereas, you know, in reality, if you're sitting on an asteroid and, and you look out in the asteroid belt, you won't actually see any other asteroids. I mean, oh, wow. even this yeah. pinpricks of light. I mean, you will see That's some right. pinpricks of light, but just glancing, you won't even know which ones are asteroids or which ones are stars. You'd have to right. watch over the course of hours and days to see which ones kind of drift with respect to the background, which is how we discover them in the first place. Now, with the use of something like ion propulsion, what does this mean for the future of space travel? Well, this isn't really useful for manned spaceflight because of just the timescales involved. Uh, though, actually, uh, come to think of it, Ion Drive was also referenced in a Voyager episode, uh, One Small Step. 
there they postulated an advanced uh, uh, drive for, used by the Ares IV rocket, where they found a, you know, an ancient Earth uh, uh, vessel that had somehow made it to the other side of the galaxy using uh, a slow ion propulsion system. So, yeah, so, but like I said, it's, it, generally this is not going to ever be the, uh, the Lamborghini of car engines, it's right, but for patience, taking large periods of time to send things casually out, right, this is the most maneuverable and energy efficient system because uh, basically it, it operates by taking a payload of fuel, which is just a neutral gas, like, like xenon gas is the one that they use, and you basically you knock a couple electrons off the gas so it has an electric charge, and then you just set up basically an electric field that accelerates it, and it just flies out at high speed. And that impulse of, of accelerating, throwing that tiny little atom out over and over and over again just builds up and gives you a, a low force. But the nice thing is the energy that's powering the drive actually comes from basically, in this case, solar arrays. So you just set up a solar panel, you have a constant supply of electricity, and so it's an electric-powered thrust. And then you just have to carry a little supply of reaction mass, this gas, with you. And as it turns out, it's, it's stupidly efficient compared to using uh, chemical rockets, which, you know, um, the energy comes from the chemical bonds and the chemicals that you bind together. But, you know, in terms of mass to energy ratio, it's actually quite low compared to what you get from an ion propulsion, especially since the energy source you don't even have to carry with you. You just convert light into energy in order to get that. So as a result, though, it basically means that, you know, if you take enough time, it really opens up your opportunity to move and, and, and travel you know, repurpose a mission to visit one place, another place, and another place. The Prius of propulsion. The Prius of propulsion, <laughs> yes. I'll take a car with an ion drive. <laughs> Sadly, my Saturn Ion did not have ion drive. I was, I was kind of uh, disappointed when I got scary. it. But. Well, Dr. Hurt, where can people learn more about this? Well, I'd encourage our listeners to go to uh, the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory homepage and follow the results from both the press conference this week and in the coming weeks as they tell us more and more about the mysterious Dwarf Planet series. Uh, you can find out more about the ion propulsion system there. And uh, I'm sure we can put the uh, link in the show notes for people. So Pluto is a planet. It's a dwarf planet. Well, actually, <laughs> That was just supposed to be an ending statement. You didn't have to reply. And now I can't let that pass because that was actually proposed at the IAU meeting as one option, that dwarf planets were a subset of the larger category of planets, and the electorate actually voted that down and said dwarf planets was a separate... So that's why it's on Wikipedia as a dwarf planet, not on a legitimate site? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson tossed Pluto out of the solar system long before it was fashionable back at the American Museum of Natural History. They were, they were actually uh, leading the drive there. And, of course, pointing out that the um, New Horizons mission will be arriving at Pluto in just a couple of months. So this is actually going to be the year of the dwarf planet. You know, New Horizons was launched when Pluto was still a planet, but when it gets there, it's going to be uh, uh, exploring the largest dwarf planet yet. Man, New Horizons is going to be so disappointed to find out when it gets there. <laughs> I know. Well, I think someone told it on the way. Oh, so okay. it's, it's kind of, it's getting itself ready for, you know, the... Uh... It's in a dead zone. Can you hear me now? <laughs> oh, man, man, they're going to be really upset when they get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Hurt, thank you so very much for stopping by and illuminating the night sky for Priority One listeners. We hope to have you on again sometime soon. Sounds great. Keep up the good work, and uh, everyone get out there and vote for the best Star Trek podcast on the internet. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. 
Last week, Priority One Podcast and the rest of the world remembered the life of Leonard Nimoy. And as promised, this week's patch notes included a new in-game memorial, not only celebrating the life of Spock in the world of Star Trek, but also remembering the lives we have already lost. Other Star Trek alum. In a blog post, executive producer Stephen Salami Inferno Ricosa explains that the fountain, where most players congregated last week, has now been replaced with a stone statue of Spock with the inscription, Live Long and Prosper. A similar version of the statue can be found on New Romulus with the inscription, The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, commemorating Spock's work towards unifying Vulcan and Romulus. Additionally, the team has added a memorial plaque to those locations with the names of other members of the Star Trek family who have since passed, including Majel Barrett, James Duhan, DeForest Kelly, and Gene Roddenberry. Players will be able to interact with the plaque and read the names, birth, and death dates, and a personal quote where possible. So have either one of you had the opportunity of jumping into the game and taking a look at these memorials? Yes, I did. I visited Vulcan and I visited Earth Space Dock and saw the, the plaque. Um, I was glad that they put the statue where they did because the players really had a direct role in deciding where that statue of Spock was going to be located on Vulcan because we all came together to honor Leonard Nimoy and that was the place we chose as players. We weren't told to do that or where to stand. It just happened naturally and I'm glad they took that into consideration when choosing to place the statue at that same fountain. Jace, how about you? Yes, I got to go both to Vulcan and to New Romulus and uh, check out the plaque and I almost missed the black flag in ESD. It's very subtle, uh, tastefully done. I especially liked the statue on Romulus, how it used the raptor wings on the Idic icon, which I thought was very nice. Being a big fan of the unification episodes, as I mentioned last week. Unfortunately, we just found out immediately before starting the show tonight that Harv Bennett, producer of four of the original series movies, and who also worked on things like The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman, also just passed at age 84. So, tough week in Star Trek history this week. I think that what they've set up in-game fulfills, at least from my point of view, pretty much everything that people were asking for. In-character, you know, immersion-wise, reveres the figure of Spock, but also pays homage not only to Leonard Nimoy, but the many important people that we've lost over the years since this franchise has been going for so long. Shortly after the servers went live again on Thursday morning, environment artist Nick Tucklefangs Dugid was in the zone chat with players on Vulcan. When asked how involved he was with the memorials, he informed the players that developers Cali Vista and Swalris built it along with help from a few others. And when players thanked Salami for acting quickly, he explained that even Cryptic Studios CEO Jack Emerit sent a note asking the team to create something in the game. That's very cool. I didn't know that. Well, players, again, you can visit these memorials on Vulcan or New Romulus. And again, at Earth Space Dock, there are black flags hanging. So in case you don't follow Tribble Patch Notes, the sector map update has been added to the Tribble test server for players to explore. Some of us have already gone in and started exploring, hoping to get a first-hand look at the new maps. Now, the following is just our preliminary review of what's on Tribble, and as we know, the content that is usually on there is at least a week or two behind the dev's production. In other words, a lot of these bugs are probably already fixed. Elijah, you got to check it out, right? I did, actually. I logged in yesterday, and it's gorgeous. I mean, it's absolutely stunning how grand the new sector map is. I mean, it's huge. 
and flying through it is almost intimidating. You know, you fly up to these planets, these stars, they're huge. They're huge. The stars themselves are almost the size of planets in a zone map. It's crazy how big this is. But like you mentioned, there are some bugs. And one of them that I noticed specifically was that effects like the effect that the assimilated transwarp engine does on your ship is oddly scaled. What it looks like is that our ship was shrunken and the map was might have been made a little bigger, but mostly that our ship was shrunken. And so not all the effects have been adjusted accordingly. So the trail was, I was just nothing but a green plasma trail uh, in sector space. It was kind of funny. I think that's exactly what happened from something Nick said, that they made the ship as small as it can be. But I think it's kind of like when you put the Borg gear on a shuttle and it just sort of dominates the shuttle. I think it's sort of that same effect. Yeah, yeah. The other thing was that there might be a bug with the area map itself because sometimes it's scaled far enough where it looked absolutely cluttered. You couldn't find where anything was. It was just a bunch of dots on the map. But during the course of my play, it reset to a more controlled scale, which looked much easier to read and much cleaner. I did a quick test on the length of time it took me to get from ESD to Kronos. It ended up being about two and a half minutes at warp 19.88. So it's not that bad. I don't think it's bad at all. Personally, I'd like to zoom out more. I'd like to be able to pull back the camera farther because it's too large when you try to fly up to a respective planet because what it's doing is that it doesn't fly to the planet. It flies to the center of the sun or the center of whatever point that is. So when that happens, I mean, your entire screen is a sun. Or forget if you're at like a binary system or a trinary system or something like that because then all you see is like really bright, globes on your screen taking up all your real estate. Other than that, though, it's still gorgeous. You start to get a better sense of the grandeur of space, and it's awesome from the blog that we covered last week how much research and detail went into this revamp. Yeah, I really enjoy the new astrometrics, which I almost always keep on anyway. They're a little more subdued, but I think they help give you a sense of scale, given that as you approach the stars, they get bigger and then smaller when you leave. So I kind of like that grounding effect, but they're not as in your face as they are in the current system. I also had a camera bug where it was like my camera was centered above my ship. So if I was zoomed way in, I couldn't even see my ship because my ship was like below the camera. So I also couldn't really zoom out far enough to, to see what I was doing very well as far as maneuvering. But that's just an early stage quirk, I'm sure. Have you guys ever thought about if it's going to take longer to do Tour of the Galaxy? Because my friend in game, Greleron, said that it's going to take longer, and I would think that it would take shorter because everything's right there, but he said it's not. Osiris in the chat says it targets specific uh, planets instead of the sectors. Yep, and Word Collis backs that up. Taco Fangs has been on the forums engaging with community and addressing player feedback. We'll have a link or two in the show notes with his forum replies. From March 5th until March 26th, research and development packs, which are used to help jumpstart crafting, will reward an additional 10 lobi, or a new Tier 6 Gem Hadar strike ship. So how different is this ship from its Tier 5 or Tier 5 upgrade predecessor? Well, for starters, it does benefit from Tier 6 perks. The new ship can load an extra boff power for a total of 13, versus the Tier 5 upgrade, which can only load 12 boff powers. More uniquely, the lieutenant commander slot can seat an intelligence officer, and the lieutenant universal console can seat a command officer. And of course, the new tier 6 has access to a new mastery trait called Go for the Kill, 
which extends the duration of critical hits from cannon rapid fire by three seconds, but can only occur once every five seconds. Another upgrade is that the new tier six boasts a plus 15 power to weapons and plus five engine power in contrast to only plus 15 weapon power in its predecessor. Now, unlike its tier five or tier five upgrade predecessor, the new ship comes equipped with a universal console called Dominion Defense Screen, which overcharges your shields, making them nearly impenetrable and quick to regenerate. The downside is that firing weapons can rapidly reduce the duration of this effect. So don't count on stellar parsing if you plan to use the console, because technically you're going to want to stop firing in order to get your shields back up. Now, there was a time when the bug ship was, for all intents and purposes, the meanest ship on the block. So is this new Tier 6 version a worthy successor? Jace, what have you been feeling from the community? Well, a couple of things. For one, I think that it will not be as elite, if you will, a ship as it was when the original bug ship came out. It certainly is very unique in its design, having both specializations, which is something we haven't seen before and could give rise to some interesting combinations. Like I was thinking about if I used it as a torpedo platform, being able to use some of the command and intel abilities that both affect torpedoes along with the many tactical slots that the ship already has, which could make some intriguing builds. And it's certainly no less potent than the original bug ship, which is still a respectable escort by any stretch of the imagination. The concerns I saw from the community surrounded the Jem'Hadar attack ship frigates for the Dreadnought carrier, which Salami Inferno did hit the forums and Reddit to confirm that yes, the new Jem'Hadar strike ship will give players access to the Jem'Hadar attack ship frigate pets for use on their Jem'Hadar Dreadnought carrier, which was good to have answered. The other concern I saw from some folks in a few places was over the wording of the original dev blog that was the last time the attack ship was offered just before Delta Rising. Which was in August 2014. Right, where they used the language that it would be upgraded to Tier 6 capabilities, which Salami clarified today and apologized for the way that misconstrued things. It was before they had announced Tier 5 upgrade, and the cat hadn't been out of the bag yet. So that was what was intended by that. So you can take that as you will. Some people are perhaps reasonably upset about the original lockbox ship before there even were lockboxes, the you know rarest ship in the game for a long time, most expensive ship in the game being pretty much cleanly obsoleted. It's a challenging precedent. It could undermine some people's confidence in the value of lockbox ships. I find myself squirming a little at it as an owner of a Jem'Hadar attack ship, and most of my ships that I fly are lockbox or lobby ships. I only own a handful of sea store ships, but time has changed. I can't do anything about it, so I'll just have to decide whether it's worth my time and uh, zen to get some R&D packs. I do a lot of crafting anyway, so I might do it. So I have been, you know, really trying to compare these ships, right? The tier five upgrade to the new tier six. And at first I was really, really underwhelmed. I was like, uh, it, it's just, it doesn't seem worth it to me. And right now, where Fire at Will seems to be dominating over in comparison to uh, the use of something like dual heavy cannons, you know, I was like, oh, cannon rapid fire, okay, I, it's cool, it's certainly going to help, but, you know, is the benefit better for Fire at Will, you know, when you are running beams? Doc Drez mentioned in the chat, this ship 
you know, not only has the tier six upgrade, not only has the mastery trait, which is a pretty handsome mastery trait, actually. I wouldn't mind having it, especially if I am going to be running cannons. But this ship has the plus 15 to power, weapons power, plus five to engine power, and ultimately can end up having a gravity well, which is going to make this ship unstoppable in PvE. I think the opposite, that it's going to be an extremely belligerent ship in PvP for those same reasons. PvE, I don't think it's going to break the meta. I think there'll be tons of ships that beat it in DPS. But as far as if you're thinking like when they bring back something like no-win scenario where you need control, yeah, I mean, it'll be crazy. Right, right. So, I don't know. I'm on the fence about this ship. When the ship first came out, you mentioned already that there was that original blog post from August that said that anybody who owned it will have a Tier 6. I understand why, as a business decision, they just cannot do that. I mean, you know, anybody who had the Tier 6. Yeah, I never thought that, but I get where people are coming from for sure. Right, right, because, you know, that's a tough ship to get your hands on, you know, as it was. But in theory, I guess now, I don't know what the game mechanic would be to have just automatically upgraded to a Tier 6. So I understand the frustration there, that break in communication. It kind of sucks because at first I was like, ooh, I hope they honor that. And then now it's like, no, they're not going to honor it. And what can you do? I mean, you cannot try to buy the ship and get it through the R&D. The other thing, though, is why would this be in the R&D pack and not a lockbox pack? Well, if you've noticed, the ships that they have out of promo packs tend to be more unusual or meant to be more rare for players to have. So promo ships have been the Jem'Hadar attack ship, the Tuffley freighter, the Sulaban cell ship, the Voth Bulwark Dreadnought, the Alachi Sheshar Dreadnought, and now the Strike ship. So more offbeat or canonically meant for players to have fewer of them type of ships because they come from packs which are more expensive per pack. Really, they don't have a smaller chance of dropping because the percentage chance is supposed to be normalized to the cost of the key versus R&D pack. But that's been my impression that the promo pack ships are always something a little more further removed from the norm. And now how do you feel about this tier six ship that ultimately makes a previous lockbox ship obsolete? I mean, you have to think of it also as a business, right? It's a business and they have to make money. So clearly they can't just give away a tier six ship. Right. Just like when the Pathfinder came out, if you already had an Intrepid or Fleet Intrepid, you didn't get a Pathfinder. Right. This is just a whole other level. Like, it really is the same, but it feels different because it's so much harder, potentially, and more expensive, potentially, to actually get things like the Bug or the Sheshar. This is something that I think will be our first community question. How about we do that? Let this be our first community question where we ask players, we ask you, what are your thoughts on the new Jem'Hadar Tier 6 Strike Ship and the method in which you earn it? Or in comparison to the method in which you earn the Tier 5 upgrade Jem'Hadar attack ship. Let us know, of course, in the comment section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO212 or as a forum reply or as a reply in the forum post for this episode on the official Star Trek Online forums. Honestly, personally, I don't care much for non-Federation ships, but that mastery trait... You see, that's the thing about these stupid mastery traits. (laughs) That's a different Now... This is a different rant. That's the thing about these mastery traits now, right? Is that normally I wouldn't care about this ship and I'd be like, eh, if I get it, I get it. You know, whatever. But now with mastery traits, I may not ever fly the ship. But man, I would like to have that mastery trait. So they should find a way to 
monetize mastery traits that would otherwise be on a ship that you would not fly. Like, I, why would I? I don't want the ship. I don't. I, I think it's ugly. I think my, personally, I think that the bug ship is ugly for that reason. It's, it looks like a bug, and I don't like bugs. I, th- I thought it was pretty. No, it looks like a beetle. It looks like it's like one of those you know from the mummy, and I don't like it. I'm not a fan of it. It's not but my it's style. Purple. Sure, but I. And it's a really good shade of purple too. It's not like a, it's just not my. It's not my stilo. It's not my stilo. So I don't want to fly the ship, but man, it'd be nice to have that mastery trait. Did I say estilo? estilo. It's my estilo. All right, go ahead. You did. I wondered what that was. Estilo, style. I mean, estilo. Oh, I get it. As we mentioned last week, the Crystalline Cataclysm event is now underway and will end March 26th. You have to be at least level 50 to participate, and you can do it on either normal or advanced. A successful run will earn you one crystal shard every 20 hours. Once you get 14 and you turn them into your Collect Crystalline Entity Event Rewards project in your Event Reputation tab, you will get 50,000 Dilithium, 500 Fleet Marks, 250 Marks of your choice, along with a Crystalline Energy Torpedo Launcher, which deals anti-proton damage, and it should be noted that this torpedo will be enhanced by abilities or items that improve anti-proton damage, which is not common for torpedo launchers. If you end up having any shards left over after you complete the main event project, you can convert them into 2,000 dilithium, 50 fleet marks, and 35 marks of your choice. But if I have any extra, I'm going to save mine for next year because sometimes I cut it too close. And remember, you can't nestle in close to the crystalline entity and be protected from the shockwave anymore, so you either have to fly 10k away from the entity or use rock and roll right before the progress bars up. And the timing is very important here. If you do it too soon, it will be over with by the time the shockwave hits. That's happened to me. Because it only lasts about four seconds. On the other hand, if you wait too long, which has also happened to me, you might not activate it in time. So you have to wait until about where the bar is like 90% filled up. Or 95 even if you want to be risky. You can also use defensive abilities. I was talking about this with Ryan STO, and he mentioned as a tactical captain, you can use the shockwave to trigger go down fighting. So, for some, they may want to get hit by the shockwave. Yeah, I did that today. Yeah. So, for example, you could use the counter command tier 5 reputation biomolecular shield generator, which reduces your shield damage by 22%. That lasts for 30 seconds. You could also use Emergency Power to Shields 1, which reduces your shield damage by 18% for 30 seconds. Transfer Shield Strength gives a damage reduction to shields. And Attack Pattern Omega 3 gives 37.4 damage resistance rating to your hull for 15 seconds. So these are some examples of what he uses as a tactical captain. So basically you can use a bunch of defensive abilities right before the shockwave is about to blow also. So he's got the biomolecular shield. Then he launches emergency power to shields. He launches transfer shield strength and attack power and omega all at one time. Not necessarily all at one time because then he might not get the go down fighting if he gets too much health. So you just pick and choose what works for you. If you do all of them. Yeah, but I thought it was one big hit from the shockwave. So it's not like you can progressively do it, right? So I, I'm curious to know what the tactic is here. Is he launching these all together just before? It's right before, but I don't know that he's doing them all together because that might save him too much. It depends on how confident. If you're already hurt, you can launch them all, and that way you won't get killed. If you're uninjured, 
you could probably take it in anything but like an escort and even then it depends on how you're spec'd or what gear you have but you'll you'll be very low on health so if you take more hits right afterwards you could get killed so you want to hit go down fighting and then hit these things so that other incidental damage doesn't kill you like from shards and, or whatnot okay so it's like you can do it immediately before the blast to protect yourself or you can do it right afterwards to make sure you don't get killed off if you're gonna bait uh, go down fighting Right, okay, understood. Yeah, and he said that if you aren't sure that you're going to survive it, it's better to just fly away since the mission fails if three players on your team die from the shockwave, on advanced at least. Right, used to be four, but they reduced it. Again this week, Admirals, in an effort to bring you some of the news and comments from PWE and Cryptic that aren't officially announced in the blogs, here's the latest comments pulled from the forums, Dev Tracker, and the Twitterverse. Christine Thompson a.k.a. at Cryptic Kestrel, tweeted, Great recording session with Liam J. McIntyre today. Welcome to Stowe. Very intriguing. Actor from the current Flash series and also Spartacus Blood and Sands doing voiceover work for Stowe. Wonder who. And he's Australian, apparently. That's what Ben Churchill, our audio editor, said. Executive producer Stephen Salami Inferno Ricosa tweeted a new teaser this week of environment artist Adam Flores working on the environment of what Ricosa calls an exciting episode. Flores is watching Enterprise on his second monitor for inspiration, perhaps? I guess we'll have to wait and see. In a forum post by lead content designer Charles Gray, a slight change has been made to the dilithium payout of sector patrols in Taldewa and the Delta Quadrant. Whereas before, patrols were paying out anywhere between 360 and 720, they are now all rewarding 480 across the board. According to Gray, this change will not affect the skill points or expertise being rewarded, and will only affect Delta Quadrant and Tau Dewa patrols. Ah, oh, such a bummer. Those 720s were super sweet, but it's been normalized. The forum post explains that there was a lot of kind of data mining, so my guess is that there were a lot of people doing that whatever 720 patrol was time and you know over and over again yeah they were doing a route of them that took 30 minutes basically so that they, they'd refresh yeah so when we last spoke with the jack of all trades thomas the cryptic cat maroney he teased us that he was working on a super secret ship we wondered was it the new tier 6 bug ship he modeled or was it the hashtag boner prize he's been alluding to is he just trolling well he tweeted today confirming that the bug ship was not, in fact, the hashtag boner prize. So we still have no word on what the secret project is. Before we wrap STO news, we have a few events coming up on the calendar. From March 12th through March 14th, the episode Hearts and Minds is spotlighted. If you play this mission during that time, you can earn a special duty officer and a psionic lerpa. Also, from March 12th through March 16th, it will be bonus Reputation Marks Weekend. This applies to all missions and events that rewards reputation marks. So I'm assuming that does not include fleet marks? Mark Weekend usually does fleet marks, yeah. I'd also like to reiterate in highlighting an upcoming community event within the KDF faction called the Festival of Blood and Fire. Coming March 14th, KDF players of all levels can meet for a day of missions, STFs, possible giveaways, and fun for all level ranges. The festivities begin at noon Greenwich Mean Time, 4 a.m. Pacific, 1 a.m. Eastern, and run all day until midnight Pacific, 3 a.m. Eastern. If you are interested in A Chance for Glory, links to the Blood, Wine, and Gach blog announcement and the STO forum post will be in the show notes. KDF Vets, take note, they are still looking for help in organizing the event as well. 
Well, that wraps up Star Trek Online news for this week. Let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. This is Elliot from Priority One Podcast. I just wanted to stop and take a moment to say thank you to Leonard Nimoy and the community that sprung up around him. Because of this community, because of him, my life has been changed and altered in, in amazing ways that I could never have predicted. And, and I can say with certainty that it absolutely would not have happened had I not encountered Leonard and, and the rest of that amazing crew. So thanks, guys. Live long and prosper. With respect to the Leonard Nimoy tribute that we included in last week's show, QPen posted on the Star Trek Online forums, You all took time out of your weekend to stream and talk about Leonard Nimoy, and talk about his contributions to Stowe. It was a nice little tribute. I look forward to see what the devs come up with to put in-game as a Nimoy memorial, and to the Stowe player base, it was a pleasure sharing memories with Mr. Nimoy on Vulcan. Al Rivera, at Captain Gecko, tweeted us, fantastic episode beautiful tribute to at the real nimoy everyone should give this a listen sean newboy commented via priority1podcast.com wonderful tribute i had a blast watching it and he's referring to our twitch stream that we did live on saturday february 28th the day after his passing we were joined by star trek online's lead designer al captain gecko rivera to play through some of the missions that uh, Leonard Nimoy had voiced for Star Trek Online and to talk about those first few months when Star Trek Online had first been announced and Leonard Nimoy was there to announce it at the conventions. So that was uh, that was fun, and we thank Al Rivera for joining us that day. Marquise posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com, That was a nice tribute to Spock, P1. Well done. We in the 44th gathered on Vulcan as well, joining our allies from the 12th Fleet and many others just to take a moment to remember such an iconic character. While there, I listened to Spock's pad, the one with the episode monologues. I did that too. Sure turned me misty-eyed. I look forward to what Cryptic will come up with as a proper memorial. Al's comments on finding the right one without unintentionally upsetting people is indeed a tricky mission. But the memorial on Starfleet Academy is very well done, so I have faith Cryptic will, as always, pull it off nicely. Once again, a wonderful episode, and it was nice to see the full P1 away team with Gecko Lizardman out and about. That was pretty entertaining. I like his Saurian. Yeah. And I got myself that gun. That oh, cool. Using. Mm-hmm. The Type 3 phaser rifle. Yep, it's beautiful. Moving on to last week's community question, which was, what has your experience been with the changes to the reward payouts in STO? Have you begun earning enough XP to progress through something like the spec system? Do you feel like you have enough options to go and level? The Grand Nagus wrote on PriorityOnePodcast.com, I really love the idea behind the reward changes, specifically the, I quote, we wanted to ensure that time invested would earn you similar rates of these rewards across the game, regardless of what you choose to play, end quote. Unfortunately, that didn't quite work out, because if I want to spend my time replaying an episode mission, I get drastically less reward than if I spend that same time, or less, playing a patrol mission. All of that said, I do appreciate all the work that went into this new reward system and hope they will make the adjustments necessary so that Dilithium can one day be a time-based currency like they've talked about. Hatchery commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, I am very happy with the reward revamp. As I am frequently running STFs and other queues with my fleet, I now have the option to participate with my lower level characters and get a good return. This is greatly enhancing the game for me and most people in my fleet. 
as we no longer have to set aside extra time to grind and gain the opportunity to grow new builds on alt characters into our strategy. You've been playing your alt more. My new ground alt? Yes, I have. Foxman86 wrote in, I think there is something people are forgetting. The episode replays, once you've done them once, a lot of people, I'm not saying all, can rerun them and blast through them in 10 or 20 minutes. A lot of the times you're doing the mission by yourself and having more people can make the mission run quicker. Additionally, a lot of episode missions are relatively easier for a lot of veterans where you can walk through almost blindfolded. I believe 192 dilithium for episode rewards might need to be a tad higher, maybe 240. Yeah, it is true. It's true, you can F-bomb them and group up for them, but the problem is you still could do a patrol much faster. Even something like uh, Cold Comfort, I think it is, or Cold Case. One of the Breen ones that you can do, I can do in minutes. It's still faster to do a patrol and more rewarding. Yeah, that 192 dilithium. I mean, if I do a mission, it's not going to be for that reason, to get dilithium. It's going to be for something No, I would do episode replay for specific items and stuff on alts, but I don't really know why I would replay them on a main. That's why I think also they're not putting too much dilithium in them. I mean, you know, these missions, I think they're making them under the assumption that it's, you know, one-time content. How often do you go back and rewatch episodes of Star Trek? I mean, sure, once in a blue moon you might go back, but... What? Not, not in the sense. I mean, it's a it's a crude comparison, but it's still a pretty decent one. I mean, I don't go every day and rewatch, you know, the same episode. So there has to be an incentive for me to do it, which, like Jay said, is going to be an item, a weapon, a console, or a bridge officer. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know why the need to incentivize with dilithium older missions. We re we do rewatch Star Trek episodes. So all the do time. I, but I don't watch the same episode over and over and over again. And plus, there there is set there are seven seasons of Star Trek. So again, although a crude comparison, <laughs> still, I mean, weeks go by, months go by before I go back and rewatch a specific episode of TNG or Voyager or even less Deep Space Nine. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Oh my god. The real point that these guys make is that the explicit stated goal of the reward system was to make all forms of play reward things at about the same time investment rate. And clearly the missions do not. Whether that's intended or not, they didn't state that that was intended, and it clearly is a disconnect. So, you know, it would be nice to hear an answer of, hey, this is our design. This is our design reason for the mission replay having a lower dilithium reward. Like, it's balanced against X, Y, or Z. I like to have the reasons, even if I don't agree with them, at least I can see the thought process. Gavin Runeblade had some suggestions about managing your dilithium in regards to fleet donations. Cookie, with your dilithium and your fleet, what I do is I look at my unrefined dilithium before I log out of any given character. That shows how much I earned while I played. I donate one-third of that number to my fleet. It's usually a small amount, but it adds up. It's never so much I can't afford to pay it because it only counts what I already finished doing that very session. Interesting uh, suggestion. It's kind of like tithing to your fleet, taking a percentage of whatever you earn. Yeah, I, I was doing like half which is way too much. <laughs> I should have been keeping more. And then I just stopped doing it because, like, I don't have I don't have time for this. I need to keep it all for myself. But this is a good way to do it because you're not you're not doing the refined. You're doing the unrefined. What you just made and then put doing a third. I mean, I could try that. The following messages come from players in game that shoot us PMs to express their appreciation for the show. Cookie, why don't you take the first one? One at Lavender Gooms says. Hi, just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy the podcast and that I'm excited to be a part of this fleet. Keep up the good work. That's so nice. 
Jocelyn Brunel at Jocelyn2. Hey, guys, I started listening to your shows recently. You're doing an awesome job. Thumbs up. Rit at Screwloose53184. Hi, Elijah. I love Priority One Podcast. And some other new people expressed appreciation for the show in game this week, including at Skelmer and at Trekfan427. Thank you all. Well, each week our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show, so please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One. Or you can also shoot us an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 212 of Priority One Podcast. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. Admirals, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comment section on our site or on the STO forum post for this episode. This week's community question is, should Pluto be a planet? No, I'm just kidding. This week's community question is, what is your opinion about the new Tier 6 Jem'Hadar strike ship? Its stats, its method of acquisition, its relationship to the original Jem'Hadar attack ship? Let us know your thoughts in the comments section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the official post for this episode on the Star Trek Online forums. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast chat in game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space priority one. Admirals, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One podcast. With that support, we've already hit our monthly running costs, and we are so very grateful to all our patrons. Don't forget, even if you can't offer financial support, sharing our show with your friends and voting for us at podcastawards.com are great alternative ways to show us your support. And don't forget to tune into Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com, covering the ongoing development of Chris Roberts' upcoming space sim, Star Citizen. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. The Priority One fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And now you can join our Klingon fleet division, Warriors of Priority One. Today is a good day to join. And now the Priority One fleet will be hosting live stream giveaways every Saturday at 8 p.m., Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, hosted only by the Priority One fleet. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including our science advisor, NASA JPL visualization scientist, Dr. Robert Hurt. To our audio engineer, Ben Churchill, with support from audio assistants, Admiral Winters and Frederick Redegard. And QA support staffer, Midnight Shadow 7, host of Tribbles and Ecstasy. Thanks to our graphic artist, Romulan Ale. To all of our bloggers and their managing editor, L. To the writer of our prelude dramas, Jake Morgan. To our video editor, Jerry Tillman. To Chris Trone, our social media manager. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support... None of this would be possible. Don't forget to vote at podcastawards.com. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. 
Engage! Transfer complete. It's Jace Intro Sync 3. And intro... Man, I'm out of beer. <laughs> First world problems. Well, you know, if, if, if something's worth doing, it's... I don't know. Well... <laughs> so... We'll also give a review of upcoming special events in Star Trek Online for you to make Mark. <laughs> okay. So you should you should be you should read this with the same urgency like a shipwide kind of thing. So visit podcastawards.com. <laughs> As always. So you did it at about a ten. Now I need you at about a six. <laughs> you got us this far. We need you to help us bring it home. Try it again. You got us this far. <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to fly with you. Um, right in the game chat box. It, we always say that and we never say where to type it. They could be typing it in Google. For type it in now. their username when they try to log in. <laughs> Sounds rude. Like I'm going to punch you right in the chat box. This one again? I mean, it's about the same person. <laughs> this, yes. this is where I'm at, right? Yes. Okay. Taco Fangs has been on the forums engaging with you'd be able to follow along. What? If you weren't in game, you'd be able to follow along. I'm not in game right. I mean, I, the, oh, yeah, okay. the game is on, but I don't have it open right now. I mean, it's open, but I don't see it. Then you should be out of the game. What are you talking about? I'm not even on the same computer that the game is on. I'm not playing the game right now. All right, Admirals, from March 5th until March 26th, research and development packs, which are used to help jumpstart crafting, will reward an additional 10 lobi. Or, or is it lobi? Is it lobi or is it lobi? Is it Risa or is it Risa? Is it Kronos oh, no. or is it Kronos? <laughs> I'm actually well, let's go it's to so that weird website, it, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was low buy in DS9 but I just can't get a handle on it feels awkward to say that all the time I would right, like a low does. buy crystal please it feels like in Perfect Strangers when <laughs> that guy would come in and says is there a Balkai Bartaka mouse here I am Balkai <laughs> <laughs> instead of Balky uh, okay I want to say it correctly though if, if that is the real way to say it I'm going to have to do some research alright <laughs> That'll be their next community the chat, question. The chat is going. That was <laughs> yeah, good. That was good. The chat. Loba. Arnjita <laughs> says Loba. 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 Okay. Totally not a dev. <laughs> From March fifth. <laughs> or as a reply in the forum post for this episode on the official Star Trek Online forums.
Somebody write that down, please, because I don't know what the heck. I'm trying. Hold on one second. Oops, oh. that's not what I meant to do. Why hey. doesn't this let me do it? <laughs> <laughs> trying to copy and paste something into the thing. LT, uh, LT had a question, but um. All right, because I can't copy and paste in TeamSpeak. Apparently, it's ridiculous. We need to write a letter to them or oh something. Oh my gosh! You cannot copy and paste conversations in TeamSpeak. Rage at your free program. Oh, well, since we're talking about the bug ship in Esperanto, insectoy—that's bugs in Esperanto. Random fact. Bam. Moving, uh, moving on in Stone News. Cookie, you ready? Or are you gonna type to LT now? <laughs> we know the answer to that no matter what she says. Yep. Yep. I'm telling her to type in Studio A because she, she's saying hi to you guys in a private conversation window with me and her. And... Oops. <laughs> there she goes. Okay, she got it. All right. LT. <laughs> <laughs> you could this see this keyboard's really loud because this is my desktop. Mm. Now on my laptop is nice and quiet. That's the one I have my game in. See how it doesn't interfere. The game doesn't interfere with the desktop. See, live okay. chat people, ironically, despite what I put up with, I'm the one not drinking. <laughs> I'm just talking out loud. Wasn't that to Enya? Me, fly or... away, fly away, fly away. Uh, sail away? Oh, sail away. Oops. In your off tune. I know. I don't remember the, mel the melody. <laughs> All right. So do, where do I start here? It's sail away, sail away, sail away. By the way. Oh, thank you. If you're wondering. Thank you. I was not, but okay. that's okay. Transfer shield strengths gives a damage. I think I put transfer. an extra S on something. Yeah, you did. You were like, transfers shield strengths. <laughs> I only put one extra Mine's S. Mine's shields. <laughs> Mine's shields. Transfer. Trans. Transfer. Rod and Blairy. Transfer. <laughs> what? Loba. Rod and Barry. Rod and Blairy. Lo Loba. Col Transfer. She Konos. Okay, and, come on. And Raza. Raza? That is so. Ugh. You hurt her brain. <laughs> Transfer shield strength gives. I cannot say it, you guys. I can't say it. Transfer shield strength. Str this is really hard to say. I don't. Is it just me? Transfer shield strength. Okay. An attack pattern omega gives. Oh crap. An attack pattern omega three gives thirty-seven point four damage resistance by rating. Oh crap. I was gonna say I might go to this. That's all I was gonna say. Oh, I heard you say. Are you gonna go to this? Yeah. So, what do you want? You want to say you want... Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag over it. Marquise, poisted. Poist <laughs> poised on your own petard. Foxman86 wrote in, I think there is something people are forgetting. The episode replays, once you have done them, a lot of... Cookie. Do you... <laughs> <laughs> what? You're not reading it right. That's why it's not... <laughs> <laughs> once you once you've done them once, a lot of people can rerun them and blast through them quickly. Yeah. Say the big deal here. <laughs> okay. 
The following messages come from players in game that shoot us PMs to express their appreciation for the show. Cookie, why don't you take the first one? One at Lavergooms. La- says, lavender. Ha- lavender. La- <laughs> what? Lavagoons. Lavagoons. <laughs> <laughs> you missed like four syllables oh and God. vowels in that. You're like Lavergoons and it. What? <laughs> lavender goons. Okay, fine. Jocelyn Brunel at Jocelyn. 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 That's what I just said. Jocelyn. You said Josh. Jocelyn both times. <laughs> okay. It's Jem Adar. The H is silent. What? That's not true. Actually, it might. It might be actually. What? Look, no. I say. I've seen Voyager. <laughs> don't you know? It's not Voyager. I've seen Enterprise. Don't Wait. Don't you know that I'm local? It's not Enterprise. <laughs> I've seen it's Deep Space Deep Nine. Deep Space Nine. People watch Deep hey. Space Nine. Hey, cut this out, editors, for reals this time, okay? Don't. Keep saying <laughs> no, I'm that. not joking. No, this is totally going in a blooper. No. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm I've sorry. Had, I'm. Pr- this is the producer end of the overruling. show. Producer overruling. And this, yeah, is, this is. I've had two glasses of two glasses of wine is all it takes, apparently. <laughs> it's Jim Adar. It's not. That's I've seen um, Deep Space Nine, and they say Hadar on there. Let me. Uh, I'll find a clip Jem for Hada- you. Jim Adar. I can find a clip for you. Jim Adar. All right, moving on. <laughs> Cookie, moving on. What? <laughs> oh, Why is it me the... again? I just went and Jace went. Why is yeah, it Yeah, because Elijah team? does a just long thing at the end. Go, it's, okay. go. It. It's just go. Why do you argue with the formula of the show every week? Just read I when it says your it. name. Oh, my God. It's so complicated. It's, it's not color-coded. W- it should be. Chris Roberts' upcoming space sim, Star Citizen. If you think trying to get your hands on a tier six Jem'Hadar ship is going to be expensive as hell, don't bother going to that game because <laughs> ships cost like four hundred dollars just for one. That's so wrong. Oh my god. I'm serious, for real though. That 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 Star Citizen. Sh- that's crazy, man. And it loaner ships. I mean, rental ships. That's yet? crazy. You no, not even. It hasn't come out yet. I don't understand. How much money have you spent on it, Elijah? None. Exactly. It was, I got gifted something, but that's it. Yes. So don't be a hater. But you know what? It, I, 